So we are in Colossians, and to recap a couple of things, we got through the first chapter last time, and sort of the two big things that are in the first chapter of Colossians is where Paul lays out the case that Yeshua is God. He talks about Genesis 1, where you have the Word and the, and the Spirit and God the Father. So he lays out the case pretty thoroughly for Messiah's divinity. And the other thing that he talks about is the mystery that has been hidden, which is to say that Christ's death, burial, and resurrection would result in the Gentiles becoming fellow members of the kingdom. So that was sort of, in a nutshell, chapter one. Ken sent me a commentary on chapter one. Remember all the discussion we had on 124, which is, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. We talked around that for quite a bit, and I'm still not sure I understand it, but I will tell you what this commentary said. The idea was that when Christ died for us, all of the suffering and disease and everything else that falls on all of humanity fell on him. In other words, he experienced, if you will, all of the disease, all of the suffering, everything, while he was on the cross. And what this commentary seems to allude to is as Paul is suffering, he is adding to the suffering that Messiah did on the cross. Not in a, oh shoot, you're making things worse for him, so much as, okay, this is all part of what he suffered, and so all of the suffering that happens in the church or to believers from now on are simply completing, if you will, the suffering that Christ took upon himself on the cross. In other words, the, the argument is, since Messiah is the head of the body, since he took on all of our infirmities and all of our suffering, everything that a believer suffers from now on is a fulfillment of that, the suffering that he took on. I understand what he said, sort of. I'm not terribly persuaded. I'm not, not persuaded. It's just, it strikes me very much as one of these uh, legal and juridical arguments where people sort of niggle around and you can prove almost anything that way. That, that's not fair. But you understand what I'm saying. It, it, it strikes me as one of those contrived arguments. Anyway, so now we're on to chapter 2. So let's start, and I suspect we're probably going to spend the rest of the evening on chapter 2, because chapter 2 is really the heart of the letter. So he starts off, as I say, establishing who Christ is. And then he goes from there asserting that Gentiles are able to come in. So now what he's doing is he is, I think, talking about the major problem in the Colossian church, which caused him to write the letter. So chapter two, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea, 
and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts might be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So here the central thought there is someone is coming in with plausible arguments and is leading the Colossian church off into places where Paul doesn't think they should go. When the Hebrew people in the Hebrew Bible and the God who revealed himself to the Hebrew people hit the Greek-speaking world, the Greeks, and I'm using Greeks in the sense of Western people who are not Hebrews, so Greeks, Romans, etc. They approached the scriptures from an analytic point of view, you know, scientific, analytic, let's see what this says, let's take the sentences all apart, let's uh, figure it out by analyzing stuff, and then what we're going to do is we're going to extrapolate from there, and we're going to describe who this God is from our perspective. So there's lots of stuff that happens in the Sunday church, and again, I'm using the Sunday church in a technical sense, not a pejorative sense, where people over the years have said, well, if this, 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 and this, then this must be true of God, even though Scripture doesn't specifically say it. That's a function of the analytical mind of the Greek world. So what Paul is saying here is apparently folks are coming in with that sort of reasoning, and they are leading the Colossian church away from the simple truth of the gospel. So that's what I'm inferring here. And as we go through, I, I think uh, it'll become obvious. So all the way down to verse 6 now. Therefore, as you receive Christ Yeshua the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. In other words, the gospel that you originally got is correct, you don't need to second guess it. You don't need to philosophize about it. Go back to what you were told originally and move out from there. Verse eight, see that no one takes you captive by philosophy an empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Now stop there a minute. My translation, which is English Standard, has elemental spirits. The Greek is actually talking about basics or foundation. King Jimmy says elementary principles and so forth. Now, why do I like the English Standard translation, which I do? Because one of the things he's talking about as he goes through this is the rulers and authorities. We've talked about that in lots of other contexts, and the idea there is you have spiritual forces who are abroad upon the earth, and they're variously called principalities and powers, spiritual authorities, and high, you know, all that kind of thing. There are various names for them, 
And those beings show up in this section as being something that Paul is speaking against. So the idea of elemental spirits, I think, goes with what's being said in the whole paragraph. Now, those translations which are basic principles or elementary principles, rudimentary principles, clearly that's what the Greek says. So I'm not arguing, but I'm asking you to keep tucked in the back of your mind that what we're talking about are spirits. So now, I'm going to read it again and then keep going. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Messiah, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So the deal here is Messiah, in accordance with God's plan, and remember we talked about this, it's in Ephesians chapter 3, it's in 1 Corinthians 2, and so forth, this idea that there is a rebellion going on in heaven and that God has set up a plan to deal with that rebellion and he set it up before the foundation of the world and it has remained a mystery. And that mystery was then revealed when Yeshua was crucified, died, buried, and raised from the dead. And that mystery is once that happens, the Gentiles become fellow heirs. So this is all talking about, in my estimation, the deceit that is happening, that is leading the Colossian church astray, is deceit which is caused by the rulers and authorities, in other words, the spiritual beings that ruled the earth before Messiah. And for that reason, I kind of like, back in verse 8, calling them elemental spirits because those are spirits that have been abroad on the earth since Eden, at least. So now, let's go back and unpack some of this because it's all talking about two things. Thing one is the Gentiles' position in the kingdom of God, which is earned for them by Yeshua. In other words, these are uncircumcised people. And what Messiah Yeshua's circumcision does and his death, burial, and resurrection does is it brings them into the kingdom of God without making them go through physical circumcision. Thing two is the thing that is leading them astray is what I would call Greek thinking arguments. Philosophy, if you will. 
the comment was that Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and so forth, the Greek philosophers, laid down principles by which they thought. And you were almost right. What they did is they codified those principles. The ability that you have to reason is something that God built into you. The reasoning process, if you will, was not invented by Greek philosophers. It was codified by them. So they thought about you know, how do people think, how do we figure things out, how do we determine truth, and they wrote down a series of principles. They did that. And they wrote them down, and it has become the Western standard, if you will, for argument and discussion. True statement. Interestingly, I was listening to Ron Dart the other day. I keep going back to him. He's, he's very good. I like him. And what he said is God, when he set us up, established an operating system in the human body or the human mind. And it was God then that created in us the ability to reason. And so the idea of using reason when you come to Scripture is entirely sound. And as I am very fond of saying, Greek and Hebrew are very different ways of thinking and everything. Not that Hebrews are illogical. It's just there's a different thought process there. Very bright people and you know, able to do logic just like anybody else can. And my comment was years and years ago, if you want to send a rocket to the moon, Greek is your language because it's designed for engineering. If you want to deal with God, Hebrew is your language because it looks at things differently. Neither one of them is right or wrong. They're just different. And the example I have used is I have been programming computers for, since 1963. And I know a number say I know, that's probably not right. I have forgotten quite a number of computer languages. And I started with assembly language and went to Fortran and then went from there to Lisp and then to Prolog and to C++ to C Sharp to Python. And each one of those languages is invented because it's good to solve a particular problem with. So if you have an engineering problem where you got to solve big matrices, Fortran's your language. It's really good at that. It screams very fast. If you want to write web code, Java or C Sharp and JavaScript are your languages because they're designed to do that. So Hebrew and Greek are designed to do different things. So what's going on here is Paul is saying that you folks are being troubled by these elemental spirits who are the rulers and authorities and what they are doing is they are breaking you. They are sending you very clever arguments of a philosophical nature designed subtly to lead you away from Christ. That's what's being said there. Now, Let's go on down, and we're going to keep talking about that because the subject is by no means exhausted here. This is one of the places where Sunday preachers have a field day. And I'll blame Adrian Rogers, but it's some radio preacher like him. A sound guy, not, not, a, not a flake. He said when Messiah died, he went down to hell and redecorated the place. And there's the other one where he went down and freed the captives. So, I mean, there's all sorts of sort of tangential references to what happened during the three days he was in the grave. Now, what I have explained here is my reading of that paragraph from Colossians 2.6 to 2.15. I will tell you that Christian commentaries that I have read 
say this is talking about Judaism. But the problem here is Judaism a la the controversy in Galatians. Because remember in Galatians, which by the way is in the same part of the world, so the churches are all sort of in that what's modern Turkey region, and the problem in Galatians has to do with Jews of the circumcision party coming through the church after Paul has left and saying, yeah, 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 I know what this Paul guy said, but in order to be saved, you really need to get circumcised to become a Jew. So that's a controversy in Galatians. So in Colossians here, talking about circumcision, right? You were uncircumcised, and Christ's circumcision is now credited to you kind of thing. So the conversation of circumcision, again, what many common, many, I say many like I've read a lot of them, I haven't. What commentators say about that is the problem here, again, is Judaizers. So far, I don't see it. So far, what I see is the problem is the rulers and authorities who have had sway over the earth since the Garden of Eden are in fact reasserting themselves and trying to confuse the new Christians with plausible philosophical arguments. Now, having said that, it is entirely possible that some of these were physically Jews. That's a true thing. And I'm going to do a digression here. I've talked about this before, but one of the things about socialism and communism is that it is a satanic counterfeit for Torah. In other words, on the surface, it looks like Torah. Take care of your neighbor, everybody share, all those kinds of things. It looks superficially very much like Torah. Karl Marx, of course, was a Jew. And during the 19th century, there was a big movement among Jews to adopt communism or socialism, because that means we can then bring the kingdom to the world, and we will have Torah in the world. What they don't realize is that it is a satanic counterfeit, and it is designed to do what it always does, which is result in misery and death. But Jews, because they are steeped in Torah, and because they are God's people, have an affinity or systems that purport to bring about good things to the mass of humanity. This is not anti-Semitic, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that Jews, because they understand Torah and they say, well, you know, take care of your neighbor, do good to your neighbor, land, all those kinds of things that we see in Torah, they see a shadow of that in socialism, so they become, wow, if we do this, we can in fact bring the benefits of God humanity. So the idea here that there may in fact be physical Jews who are the vehicles of some of this philosophy is entirely possible. But the problem here is not Judaism. The problem here is something else. Since this is also directed at Laodicea and Revelation 3, one of the signature characteristics of the church at Laodicea is A, they think they're wealthy and they're not and B, they're neither hot nor cold. One of the churches that I have been in is the Episcopal Church. And the Episcopal Church that I was in sort of prided itself on being, we're the doctors and the lawyers and the Indian chiefs, 
and we do a lot of reasoning and so forth. And so you wind up in that particular church that I was in having, for example, women who could talk themselves into abortion being the right thing. And so in that particular church, and it's endemic to churches in America, what's happened is philosophy has taken over, if you will, and they are neither hot nor cold. They can see both sides of a two-sided question, three sides of a two-sided question. Maybe this, maybe that, you know, I don't know about that. Well, the Bible says, well, I know, but, you know, that kind of stuff. That's philosophy, and that's philosophy turning a church neither hot nor cold, and it's philosophy drawing you away from the simplicity of the gospel. Now, having said that, there are people in those churches who are not captured by philosophy. So I'm not throwing rocks particularly other than I am. Having said all that, let's go down to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensual mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligament, grows with the growth that is from God. Now, you begin to see how Christian pastors and teachers can take from this that the problem is the Jews. And they can take from it that you're not supposed to keep Sabbath, you're not supposed to see the new moon, you can eat anything you want. That's not what it says. Let's do two scenarios here. And by the way, notice that Jews are not mentioned anywhere here. Two scenarios. Scenario number one is you have some Jews coming through there with a three-day pass and a briefcase. And they're excoriating them for eating bacon, not keeping Sabbath, not observing the new moon. That is one interpretation of what I just read. Another interpretation is they are eating clean. They are observing the Sabbath. They are observing the new moon, and their pagan friends are ridiculing them for doing that. Notice that the Jews are not mentioned anywhere in this. So if you're spring-loaded to think that the problem is Judaizers, you will read that as you don't need to keep the Sabbath, doesn't matter what you eat, you don't observe the new move. If, on the other hand, you are a new Christian in the early church and you are keeping Sabbath and you are eating clean and you are observing the new moons and you are getting grief from your former pagan friends. So now, I'm going to channel my inner Ronald L. Dart here. He gave a very nice dissertation on that, and especially with respect to Sabbath. Now, you all have been in Torah for years. How important is the Sabbath in Moses? It's central to everything. And in fact, God says through the prophets, one of the main reasons that Israel gets kicked into exile is because they aren't following the Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath. It's not the Jewish Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Keep, guard, or remember the Sabbath, depending on which version of the Ten Commandments you read. 
it is absolutely central to Judaism. And furthermore, the early church, certainly at the time of this writing, was almost exclusively Jewish. So the idea that Christ being raised from the dead abrogated the Sabbath, if that were the case, somebody in the book of Acts, the Gospels, somewhere, somebody would have said, oh, hey guys, by the way, you know all that stuff that you learned from Moses about the Sabbath? Doesn't apply anymore. We don't do Sabbath anymore. It's, It's all done now because Christ is raised from the dead. In other words, with the early church being so thoroughly Jewish, if there had been a desire on God's part to change the Sabbath, he would have to say so. He would have to get his people by the stacking swivel, hold them up and look them in the face and say, all right, all of that stuff that I told you about the Sabbath in Moses doesn't apply anymore. Now that Yeshua is raised from the dead, Sunday's your day and everything is now changed. There is nowhere in the New Testament that that happens. Interestingly, I heard some radio preacher the other day, I don't remember who it was, not Ronald Dart. Actually, no, it was a blog I was reading, saying that in the book of John, which is this guy's central thing, that most of the conflicts between Yeshua and the Jews occur over the Sabbath. He heals on the Sabbath. He eats on the Sabbath and so forth. And from that, this guy concluded that the Sabbath is not a big deal because Yeshua slapped the Jews around all through the book of John about the Sabbath, so the Sabbath doesn't count anymore. What Yeshua was saying is the Sabbath doesn't trump human need. So, for example, he heals the man with the withered hand. And he looks at all of these guys with their hard hearts, and he basically says, "Uh, I'm in town for one day. I happen to be here on the Sabbath. This is the day I'm here. You're telling me that I can't tell this guy's hand to straighten out on this day because I'm violating the Sabbath? Soften your hearts. Walking through the field, plucking grain. The Jews say, oh, you're harvesting and threshing on the Sabbath. And the point he makes is, guys, soften up. The Sabbath is made for human relaxation. I am not going to start a medical practice and have my business open on a Sabbath. But as I walk through the synagogue and I see this poor guy with a withered hand, and I can just say be healed, and it is, I'm going to do it. That's different than me being a doctor with a practice and keeping my practice open on the Sabbath. That would not be proper. But similarly, if a doctor in a synagogue sees some guy flop down with a stroke, it is perfectly acceptable for that doctor to rush over to him and do whatever he can do to save the guy's life. So this guy, he took what I believe is the wrong lesson from the conflicts that Yeshua had with the Jews over the Sabbath. And Yeshua's perspective is, you guys have taken a Sabbath, which should be a joy and a rest, and you've turned it into a burden. You've turned it into a problem for everybody that everybody is terrified of doing something wrong and having everybody come down on them like a load of bricks. This should be a joy. This should be a rest. And yeah, if you've got to take your animal out and water it on the Sabbath, of course you will. And if you have somebody walk up to you and he's got a withered hand, you can say, be healed. That's not really violating the Sabbath. And again, the problem with first century Judaism is not the Torah, it is the oral law. 
and the oral law has encrusted Moses with all sorts of the traditions of men that Moses never said. And the other part of that is, if it weren't for the Sabbath, we'd work ourselves to death. We just would. Let's go back to verse 16 now and read it in the context that I think it should be read in. So verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Asceticism. Asceticism is not Jewish. Jewish is not an ascetic religion. Asceticism means self-denial. Going out and putting on a hair shirt, living in a cave, and eating nothing. They specifically are not ascetic. In fact, Yom Kippur, which is the only day that you fast, is a big deal. Because fasting, self-denial, all those kinds of things are not part of the Jewish religion. Now, people will fast periodically for spiritual reasons and all that kind of stuff. But it is regarded as a spiritual dead end if you go through life denying yourself. God has given us a beautiful world full of lovely things and he wants you to enjoy them in the proper way at the proper time. But they're there for enjoyment. So asceticism is not a Jewish thing. And worship of angels, uh, that is also not a Jewish thing. Jews are, in fact, fiercely monotheistic. Now, don't get me wrong, because one of the things that happens in the Bible especially early on, is Israel periodically goes astray and does worship angels, demons, and they very often get led astray, which gets them sent to Babylon and places like that. So Jews are not without vulnerabilities, but Moses doesn't talk about any of that. In fact, Moses is pretty fierce on one God. He's the only one you worship. So the thing in Revelation is John is periodically confronted by angels, and he is gobsmacked and his reaction just like Daniel's reaction was was to hit the deck and the angels don't you dare I do not accept worship so none of this is Jewish so 18 again let no one disqualify you disqualify you by what has anybody listened to a liberal argue you're a white male therefore you're disqualified from having an opinion here. You're a man. Therefore, you're disqualified about having an opinion about women. You are rich. Therefore, you're disqualified to have an opinion. In other words, disqualification here is basically denying your ability to engage in discussion because of who you are. The idea that because of who you are, your opinions can't be voiced is disqualification. Drew Brees has set a new NFL record for apologies. By the way, if you're ever faced with that, never resign and never apologize. Do not do either one. If you're in a position where they can fire you, make them fire you and then sue them for wrongful termination. But do not resign and make it easy for them.
I never apologize. It doesn't do any good. Anyway, moving right along. Verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligament, grows with the growth that is from God. He's talking here against philosophical arguments which lead you away from the simplicity of the gospel. That's what he started this whole chapter with. 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, this is that same translation problem, rudimentary things, and I've explained why I like elemental spirits, even though that is not what the Greek says. So, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. If you are spring-loaded in the anti-Jewish position, you go back to things like, you can't eat this because it's not food. You don't eat bacon. Similarly, you cannot handle or touch a dead body because it makes you unclean. So if you're thinking of this in terms of Judaizing, to use a Sunday term, you would look at those as saying the Torah, which does say don't touch this, don't eat that, and so forth, is what's being referred to. That's not what's being referred to. It's not sinful to touch a dead person. In fact, in some cases it's commanded. So if your spouse dies, God forbid, you are required to handle the body. And there's a procedure then that you can get cleaned up. The only thing you can't do at that point is come into the presence of God in the temple. You're temporarily in the realm of death and you gotta get back into the realm of life before you can walk into God's presence. Mostly having to do with priests. But in Israel, since Tamai, uncleanness is communicable, which means that if you happen to have touched a dead body and you touch somebody else, you can communicate to them and what you may inadvertently do is communicate it to a priest, which would then put him in danger. Hence, the Israelites have developed a whole body of regulations to keep those people safe from inadvertently okay. becoming unclean. Once a month, a healthy woman menstruates, a perfectly healthy, perfectly normal, but it is a marker of mortality and what God says is you can't come into the tabernacle or the temple in that state. And you can pass that state on to others through touch. Just what scripture says. So they have developed all of these social customs to prevent the inadvertent contamination of someone who might go into the tabernacle. So the idea of do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, and so forth, is not necessarily referring to Torah because pagan religions have the same kinds of regulations. Pagan religions have rules of asceticism. So this is common to all religions. In Moses, it is specifically defined. In other religions, it's sort of roll your own. Whatever the, that religion 
comes up with. So 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. Notice human precepts and teachings. It doesn't say according to Moses, who is channeling God. So these are things that human religion has added on, either added on to the Torah, as much of Judaism does, or invented for themselves, as pagan religions do. But in neither case are we talking about Moses. 23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. Self-made religion, not the religion of God, as transmitted by Moses. Self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So lots of philosophies, man-made religion, teach self-denial as a path to spiritual development. Very common in lots of religions. In fact, it's very common in early Christianity. And those did not come from Moses. Where they came from was the pagan religions and were brought into Christianity by the pagans. Can you say Christmas tree? Can you say Easter bunnies? All sorts of stuff came into Christianity from the pagans that were not part of Moses. So I have read Christian commentaries that say that this is talking against Judaism. And in some sense it may be because Judaism as it exists today has departed from Moses and has added a whole bunch of stuff of their own. So in some sense there may be some truth there. But that's not what the argument is saying. It's not speaking against Moses. It's speaking against human religion, whether it is the human religion that has been added onto by the Jews, onto Moses, or the human religion that has been invented out of whole cloth by the pagans. The Torah, as given by Moses, there's five or ten percent of your life that God says don't do that. Adultery, all that kind of stuff. There's five or ten percent of your life that God says do that, it's commanded. Sabbath, feasts, those kinds of things. In between those two, five or ten percent on the opposite ends of each other, God is silent. So if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief, go ahead. As long as it's not in the five or ten percent that's forbidden, or as long as it's not in the five or ten percent that's commanded. Everything in between is fair game for you to do. What people do who are religious is they take that 80% in the middle and they start putting regulations on that. And that becomes the traditions of men. Judaism does it, Christianity does it, pagan religions do it, every religion does it. This is human tendency. That would be what Paul is calling something that has the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and the severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The stuff that religious people do to encroach, and not just religious people, by the way, again, as this country is undergoing turmoil about what you can say and what you can talk about, it isn't just religious people that want to impose rules on that 80%. Everybody does. It's a human tendency. And what Paul is saying, and Moses is saying, and God is saying is, I have given you liberty. Don't let people impose on that 80% of your life that I don't give you regulations about.
80% is an arbitrary number, by the way. It's not a scientific number. But in fact, the amount of things that God says don't do and the amount of things that God says do do are really fairly small in the life of a human being. One day in seven, Sabbath. Moedim, you got, what, seven of them? In addition, new moons. I mean, the, most of your time is your own, and most of the things that are possible to do are on your own command. They are not commanded by God. But what religion does, either secular religion or religion religion, is they want to impose their order on that free part that God gave you.